This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby, who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of four, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. We This is episode 49, we think. <laughs> we're planning on that at least. Uh, it's July. We're recording this in June. Um, but a lot of people are figuring out their summer child care. Like, you know, this is... When summer is always a good time for reevaluating lots of things because the schedule tends to be a little bit different. And Sarah, you recently had something that you you were trying to reevaluate what's what's going on, um, just involving trip childcare, right? Yeah. So we had initially planned on bringing our nanny on our trip, um, but then kind of things fell into place where it made more sense to allow her to take more of her vacation during that time, because otherwise we kind of end up in a tough spot where, you know, I, I'd rather have it later on where I have some days off where she's off versus anyway, it just made best use of her vacation time, if that makes sense. So we decided that actually it made more sense to, you know, just for the few things that we'd like to do as adults, perhaps, um, to try to find some childcare. So my current task is to like go on care.com and, or, 
talk to Josh's cousin who lives in Portland and find maybe an eager college student that wouldn't mind doing like a couple of nights during the week and maybe some daytime um, because I specifically want a massage during this trip and that is not something I want to (laughs) try to bring the kids to. Yeah. So that's a little bit different. I know some people have done like the whole vacation nanny route where they've hired someone to just go with them on the whole trip. I think if we were going to just one place, that would have been something I would have considered so that that way our current nanny could use her vacation days, but then we'd, we'd have some help. Or even like bringing a family member, uh, although my sister would be the, the the great contender for that, but she has a very inflexible job because she owns a business. So that, that doesn't work very well for us. But yeah, yeah the vacation childcare is sort of a separate task. Do you guys do anything special for trips or have you looked at your ba- babysitting portfolio recently <laughs> and made any shifts? Well, we've certainly tried to, um, I mean, we, there are Yes, various like sitter services in different locations that we've we've used. Um, you know that uh, hotels sometimes have contracts with um, sitters. There are people that have have been screened, and especially if they're like you know only just staying in your hotel room with the kids. I mean, it seems like relatively um, low risk situation. You know, we've certainly um, had had nannies come with us on trips, and that's usually been a, a great option. You just have to make sure you have separate rooms or big enough house or things like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's always summer is a good time for thinking about this. We we have two other sitters other than our nanny that we've been using sort of on and off. I would kind of like to make sure I keep giving them some hours, but that that involves thinking through it ahead of time and, you know, that I'm asking for weekend stuff. And, and so, you know, sometimes they're a little bit less available too. So I, I've, it's almost this thing of like, I need to make sure they're still getting hours. Um, so they stay interested in us as opposed to, you know, it just don't. And then people aren't ever available because they have other options. Right. Because they get another steady job. That makes, yeah. I mean, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. This is really quite a portfolio situation. I, <laughs> I, it's one of those things that you don't know going in, like, oh, how you manage this of like keeping people interested in sitting for you. And then, you know, people move in and out of your life or they, they get other full-time jobs or they leave the area. But yeah, no, I, I, if people are listening to this, probably it's a good, use this as a trigger to think about it. Like, what is my sitter portfolio as I'm looking forward to the coming school year? It's also like, do I have everything in place? Like, cause you know, certainly you could start looking for people now. It's, it's a good thing to think about. Yeah. College students are, you know, a little bit more eager to, as the year is starting perhaps to sign up for things. Although that has a, that's also a double-edged sword. Cause if they're really excited and they're like, Oh yes, I want to make money in the new school year. But then they realize they're more busy than they thought. Then that, that um, sometimes can implode around finals time. I kind of learned that the hard way a couple of years ago, which again is why, why I definitely appreciate the portfolio approach. Cause then if you lose one person, you've still got your others. And I will say, I'm not practicing what, my, what I preach right now. Cause we really, just only use our nanny and one other very nice and very reliable woman. But I think I just need at least one more on the roster so I can feel a little bit more covered. Covered. Exactly. Well, we are excited to welcome Heidi Grant to the podcast today. One of the major themes of Best of Both Worlds is that martyrdom is totally overrated and asking for and expecting help is the secret to a happier life. And Heidi is actually an expert on asking for help. Her new book, Reinforcements, talks about the research on asking for assistance and what works and what doesn't. Heidi is also a working mom herself. So Heidi, we're really excited to have you here. Can you please uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? 
Sure. I'm very excited to be here. So uh, again, Heidi Grant, um, professionally, I'm a social psychologist by training. Uh, I'm the chief science officer at uh, the Neuroleadership Institute, and I also work at Columbia University as an associate director of the Motivation Science Center. As you said, I have, I'm also a mom. I have two kids. Um, my daughter is 12 and my son is 10. And I'm really fascinated. I think, you know, all of the, the books I write and the, the work I do, the research I do, I'm always looking for those places where the the science of hu- of human behavior tells us something that that shows us where our intuitions uh, might be wrong. So, you know, some of my my earlier books are about goal setting and motivation, and where we uh, sometimes blame our our failures on on the wrong things, and because we blame our failures, uh, you know, to reach certain goals on the wrong things, we have a hard time uh, then adjusting and using the right strategies. Uh, my last book was about how we often don't come across the way we think we are uh, to other people and how to use strategies to bridge that gap. And this book, as you said, is really around what I think is probably one of the places where our intuitions are are the most terrible for some reason. Um, and that is sort of asking for help, understanding the, the likelihood that we'll get help from other people, understanding how to ask for help in a way that makes it really rewarding to help you. Um, there just seem to be a lot of gaps between how all of us, myself included, approach this and what really the research says um, is true. So it was an exciting topic for me to dig into because I think, you know, there, you know, there's, there isn't really one of us out there that doesn't need more help than we're getting. And so to try to bridge that, that gap for people is, is a lot of fun to do. Yeah. Well, was there anything in particular that sparked your wanting to write this or developed over research you'd done over the years? Yeah. You know, it, um, I, I had done some research in this space and knew quite a bit about it, but I think, um, you know, I'm just as guilty. I certainly was, uh, until I really started digging into the research to do this book, just as guilty as everyone else of being uh, resistant to asking for help. You, you know, talked about how you actually, uh, you admitted that you hate it. <laughs> oh, I hate it. I totally, I mean, and, 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 and there's still some discomfort and I, I think it's gotten a lot better. Um, you know, part of what I, you know, there's really, when you, when you think about why people don't ask for help, there's really, you can kind of break it down into, you know, two big categories. One is that we um, worry about what other people will think of us when we ask for help, or or we we sort of judge ourselves negatively for needing it in the first place. But we we often assume that people will think less of us because we need help. That they might not like us as much, right? That they'll kind of you know that 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 somehow will be judged negatively. Again, the research actually, when you dig into this, shows that the opposite is true. Not only do people not think less of you and not like you less when you ask them for help. The research actually shows that they like you more, um, that how that helping one another is actually something that kind of bonds people together. And that when someone has actually helped you, they actually, they increase their liking for you, not decrease it. So again, like intuition's completely wrong, right? We, people like us more when they help us. So that's sort of one piece of it, right? We, there's that sort of like, uh, you know, how I'm, I, I worry about how I'm being judged. The second part of it is I worry about being rejected. Right, I worry about being turned down. It's in- incredibly painful. Like in the book, I talk about really how our brains are are wired to treat social threats like being excluded, being rejected, 
um, being turned down when you ask for help, being disrespected or not valued. All of those things actually trigger real pain in the brain. They're processed in much the same way that physical pain is processed. So when we ask for help, part of why we don't want to do it is that we're kind of dreading hearing no and, and knowing how that might make us feel, knowing the, the actual literal pain um, that we'll experience from rejection. You know, so the other part of the thing I spend a lot of time talking about in the book is how, again, anticipating rejection, uh, you know, we, we, we're kind of wrong to worry about that so much because it turns out that people are much more likely to help us than we think they are. On, on average, when you look at the, the research, we underestimate the odds of getting help by, by more than half. So people are at least twice as likely to help as we, as we think they'll be. Uh, one of the more fascinating things that um, I read in, you know, in reinforcements was your story of Benjamin Franklin. Of, you know, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin is, is sort of the patron saint of self-help, um, but he had all sorts of great mm-hmm. ideas for how, you know, people interact with each other. And you talk of the story of him, you know, one of his fellow leaders in, in Philadelphia, you know, not supporting him for something. And so what, the way around that is he went and asked this guy for a very rare book from his library. Like, could he borrow this book from him? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> which seems ridiculous. Like, right. how is that going to help? It? But the fact that he loaned him something and then he wanted, you know, that this guy was asking him for help. All of a sudden, this man is supporting Benjamin Franklin, like Benjamin Franklin is his friend, um, which is, you know, Ben Franklin obviously knew a lot about human nature, but I think that that demonstrates your point you're making on that quite well. Absolutely. The, you know, he, again, Franklin was a really clever guy. He, he picked up on things that a lot of us need to do like lots of experiments to figure out, but the, but, but he knew that by asking this guy for this very rare and valuable book, what, what had basically happened was from the perspective of the person who loaned him the book, he had then these sort of two inconsistent thoughts rattling around in his mind. One was, I just loaned a very rare and very valuable book to Ben Franklin. And then the other is, I really don't like Ben Franklin. And, and, and that kind of, you know, people were, were again, sort of wired to want to be consistent in our thinking. And and when we, we have these inconsistencies, it creates what psychologists call cognitive dissonance, which is really like a tension state in the brain. I, I believe two things that don't go together. And so what happens is we tend to adjust one of our beliefs so that they actually are compatible. And that's what happened with Franklin. So after loaning him this book, he basically, the guy decided, well, you know, I must not think Ben Franklin's such a bad guy after all. And, and there's actually lots of research that shows that, that, that this really is, that's really works. There was one study where, you know, people come into the lab, they earn money for doing a task, but the experimenter, his name was Mr. Boyd. That was his name. He, he was deliberately unpleasant during the entire experience. You know, he'd say things like, you know, pay attention. I don't want to have to repeat myself. And he was really, really rude to all the participants. And at the end of it, half of them where, where, you know, Mr. Boyd comes up to them at the end and says, look, here's the money, you know, for participating in the experiment that you earned. But, you know, the thing is, I'm paying for this out of my own pocket. And this is actually sort of the last of my money. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind not taking the money, because if you take it, I, I actually don't have any money. And people would invariably say, okay, uh, sure, you can keep the money. At the end of it, they asked the participants how much they liked Mr. Boyd. And what you found was the people that got to keep their money that he didn't ask for help from, um, they hated him. They rated him very, very low. Uh, and the people who asked, uh, who actually gave them the money, him the money back, rated him really high. 
Like they liked him. And in fact, the more money they had to give him back, the more they liked him. So there's this weird thing where it's like, if you do a favor for someone who's, you know, not very nice, you, you, you know, kind of a jerk, you like them more. And if you do a big favor for them, you start to think they're kind of a great person. And so again, it's one of these things where, you know, one of, you know, ironically, one of the best ways to get somebody to have a good impression of you and to like you is to actually ask them for help. Yeah. That is so fascinating. Do you think there's an aspect of people like think seeing the person as more vulnerable, like, you know, in that particular experiment, mm-hmm. I can imagine it might be partly the help and partly, I guess, well, maybe it's the fact that when somebody asks you for help, they're sort of revealing themselves as another real person with the same human challenges rather than just some sort of abstract other. So I don't know if that's yes, I, I think that that's probably true. I think that that show it, that, that there's something human and that suddenly you can relate to this person in some way. I think that's part of it. Also, you know, one of the things we know about, and one of the, again, the big themes of the book that I, that I really want people to walk away understanding is that helping feels great. Um, you know, m- much of the time, there's a few things I talk about where we kind of ruin it for people sometimes, and they, like we make it not possible, like the helping isn't satisfying. But most of the time, much of the time, Helping other people feels really good. We it, it, It's one of the most reliable ways to increase people's sense of um, well-being, their self-esteem. It's one of the most reliable ways to be like end up in a good mood is to uh, is to is to do something helpful for someone else. So the other thing that's happening there, like when I give Mr. Void that money back, I feel good about me and I, I feel like I'm a good person. I did the right thing. Um, I'm, I'm, I have a little bit of a like boost of positive mood. And that also transfers onto my feelings toward Mr. Boyd. I mean, he just kind of created a moment where I could feel good about myself. And I think we all have those when we, you know, it's so one of the great ironies of helping is that we all feel good helping. And that's just human nature. And we all feel terrible asking for help. Even though, you know, and again, this is when one of the reasons we underestimate so much uh, why the, the likelihood that other people will help us is that when we're thinking about asking them for help, all we're thinking about is the effort they'll have to put in, how unpleasant it might be for them, or like how onerous the task is. We're not, it's like a massive failure of perspective taking. We're not thinking about how it is for them. First of all, we're not thinking about how uh, awkward it would be for them to say no. They don't want to do that, right? That's unpleasant on on the on the on the helper side. And also the the benefits of helping, the the real boost. I mean, there's there's very few things in life that actually more reliably lead to feeling good about yourself than helping other people. We're just wired that way. So so I always sort of say, you know, when you're feeling awkward about asking for help, remember you know, you're actually creating an opportunity for somebody to feel really good about themselves. There's, this is really a potential win-win. Um, and I think, again, some of that warm glow that we feel sort of transfers to how we feel about the person we helped. Talk a little bit about those ways that you can ruin that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was saying we could, we could do a whole like effective ask. Like, so let's talk about what's an effective ask and sure. what's an ineffective ask. So how we can do it well and then how we ruin it. Oh, there's lots of ways to ruin it. So, and again, there's, and you can mean different, different things by ruining it. So, so you can do things that actually lower your chances of, of getting help. And then you can do things that while you'll still probably get the help, it will be less rewarding for the other person. So why don't we start with what are the things we do that make us less likely to actually get help? 
the very first thing we do is sort of fail to recognize that the helper needs some things from you in order to actually give you help. And the first two, which kind of go together, are the helper needs to, the potential helper needs to actually know that you need help and that you want it. And, and this is actually a huge gap for a lot of people because first of all, because none of us really like asking for help, we all kind of walk around wishing that people would just help us. And I mean, I think that's no more, you know, again, speaking from experience, that's no, nowhere is that more true than sort of when it comes to our partners. You know, I remember very, very often feeling with my, my children's father that I just couldn't believe he couldn't see how much help I needed, right? That he wasn't just spontaneously getting up and offering to do things because clearly I was so overwhelmed and, and had so many things that I needed to do. That's actually just not how it works. The truth is that other people like, and we are all guilty of this, um, we mostly attend to things that have to do with ourselves. Uh, we, we don't notice other people's need nearly as much as people assume we do. And that's because, again, there's just so much to pay attention to. There's so much information coming in at us. And and mo and all of us are kind of, again, our brains are wired to pay the most attention to the things that affect us directly. So each of us is sort of going around throughout our day, mostly focused on our own stuff, but assuming that everybody else is paying attention to us, right? And 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 nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> they they are all in their own little worlds. Um, exactly. we, and we talk our, about this a lot on the show. Yeah. Yes, and nobody notices included. what you do. <laughs> exactly, ourselves included. You know, we are all guilty of this. And so, there's a very good chance that the reason, if you're not getting the help you need, there's a very good chance that the people you want help from are not seeing your need. They're not understanding it. They're not noticing it because they're too busy noticing their own needs. And it's not a failure of wanting to help. It's not even selfishness. It's just actually the way we're all wired. So so the first thing is you need to actually notice. And the, the busier people are, the more things they have on their plate, the less likely they are to notice that somebody else needs help, even somebody, even when you think that that should be. There's something called the psychologist called the illusion of transparency. We all feel that our thoughts and feelings and intentions are obvious to other people and nothing could be further from the truth. So we need to make explicit requests for help. We need to get over that sort of fantasy world where people will just offer spontaneous help to you uh, and you never have to ask for it. That's not realistic. We need to ask for it. And because the, the other part of it is even if someone does notice that you need help at work or at home, they may not know that you want it. So, so you may need it, but, but you may not want it. And if you've ever offered unwanted help to someone, you know how unpleasant people can be when, you know, because they, they'll sometimes take it as, as sort of an insult, like, oh, you think I can't do this on my own. And so people are very reluctant, even when they see the need to offer it, if it's, you know, in an unsolicited way, because they don't want to offend you. They don't want to give you something you don't actually want. So, so for both of those reasons, we really need to be explicit. You need to not make assumptions. There's a there's a phrase that I absolutely hate that I want to ban from the English language. It is, um, it goes without saying. Uh, nothing goes without saying. Everything goes with saying because uh, people need to things said to them explicitly if you if you want something in return. So I think that's sort of the the, the probably the one of the biggest mistakes we make right there 
Um, I'd say another very, very common mistake, and this is really more true in the context of work, you see this a lot, is that we make requests for help to a whole bunch of people at once. Uh, so, you know, you send out that email saying like, hey, I really need somebody who can uh, help me on this particular project. And you send it to 10 people who could potentially help. Or Laura, you know, you and I, as book authors, sometimes yes, you, you I was going to bring this yep, up, Heidi. <laughs> that's the one. That's the one. We send out a group email, right, to everybody. And we say, hey, everyone I know, would you possibly, you know, uh, read my book? And if you like it, would you say something nice about it? Um, All right. But here's the thing, Heidi. Yeah. I, after reading your book, I didn't do that. I know, right? It's I emailed a so- hundred people individually and asked them, like influencers, to and did it work? Did it work? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I would say um, the vast majority did. I mean, they're people I know, so I mean, it would be. I mean, in many cases, I feel like it would be almost rude. Like you know, there's somebody you've yes. talked to for years. Like you write them specifically saying, "Hey, please, you know, post on your blog, uh, Twitter, or whatever. You know, just wish me a happy pub date." I would say the vast majority did, but I'm curious because Heidi. I was on a mass email from you. What happened I know, there? <laughs> but I, you know what I did? I did, I sent, uh, so, so I was, again, and this is one of the things where you're pressed for time. So we, <laughs> what, 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 happens, what happens is we send these group emails out for, for support because we're pressed for time. I mean, the reality is we, we want to kind of, uh, you know, send one kind of mass plea out and you kind of assume uh, that, you know, that'll be fine. And what the research shows, right, is something called diffusion of responsibility. So that the more people who could help you, the less likely anyone is to actually help you because each person feels less responsible in that case. You sort of sit there and you go, well, I'm sure a lot of the other people are doing it, so I don't really need to do it. And, uh, and yes, I knew this, right? So I sent one of these mass emails out and I knew it going in and I was so, I was, I was absolutely crunched for, for time. My, my editor was like, you need to do this right now. So I did it. But what I did was I actually did a little bit, I'm like, you know, apologies for the mass email. And what I did was I did send actually individual emails, but I, I had the bulk of the text. I just copied and pasted, but I acknowledged that I had done that. And so that people would feel like a little bit less like they generic in this situation. Cause it's like, okay, I'm apologizing. Look, I know like I'm pressed for time, but, and the other thing I did, so I'll come back to this in a second because I, I did something else that is related to how you can get more help. That is a good strategy. So I violated my own rule a bit, but I did so knowingly, like, as like, I know that this is going to lower my chances and I'm, I'm going to take it on the chin on that one. Um, it is generally speaking, much, if you have the time much, much, more effective to send out individual requests. The other thing that it's actually much, that's even more true is that email requests in general are much less effective than face-to-face or or phone, like sort of live requests. Now, again, the reality is a lot of times we have to do things by email. You either maybe don't know the person well enough to to pick up the phone and call them, or you don't see the person face-to-face. But in the context of work, where generally speaking, a lot of these people you're working with are like down the hall. Uh, It's amazing how often we ask for help over email and we do it because it's more comfortable for us, right? It's like, it it feels, you know, less awkward to 
put in a request over email. But what the research shows is you're 34 times more likely to get a yes if you ask for help in person rather than via email. The 34 times, that is a lot. (laughs) The research in this particular study, it took 200 emails to get to the same success rate as six in-person requests. So yeah, it's huge. And again, it's because we don't think about like, yes, asking by email is easier for you, but you know what it also is? Easier for the other person to say no. (laughs) Well, or just ignore. Like, oh, I never got that email. How funny. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So so whenever you can, again, like get over that initial discomfort and create either like a phone or face-to-face interaction where you're asking for the help, you're just vastly more likely to do it. Now, the other thing that I did when I sent out that email to all of my book author friends saying, hey, guys, uh, would you give me a hand with this, is that I actually reminded people right at the beginning that we are fellow book authors. And that is something that's another motivator for helper. And it's called like in-group identity. So in other words, we are more likely, and again, this is just out of how human beings are, we're more likely to help other people that we see as a part of our own group, um, that we see as sort of part on the same team, having the same goals, people with whom we share common experiences or common identity. We're just naturally more inclined to be helpful to those people than we are to people with whom we feel we we have nothing in common and we, we don't share common goals. So there, there's another little thing you can do, which is sort of that subtle reminder, like, hey, you and I do share a common identity. We're all in the same boat. We all know how hard it is to, you know, how, how much we all hate asking for this, right? And that's the thing that kind of puts people in that mindset of, you know what, I will help you because you're right. We're all in the same boat and we all should be helping each other out. And again, that's a good thing. We have a lot of uh, a decent cohort of physician listeners, and this whole thing absolutely strikes a chord with me in terms of call requests. So when you get your schedule like a year in advance, invariably things come up and you have to switch. Sure. And so this is such a common conversation, and I'm like listening to you and thinking, oh my God, instinctively, I totally, number one, I always walk into someone's office like when they're in a good mood, like I would never ask them over email. Right. And number two, I think I do do that thing where I'm like, oh, you know, I tend to ask the people who have kids, and I'll be like, you know, all those school events, I have one to go to. Can you cover me for this day? And if you have one coming up, then I can cover you. But that's so, it's true. It's like, it's like you create that, that it creates empathy, you know, because it's like that, that common experience that we share is helps me to empathize with you, which makes me more likely to help. Empathy is one of the strongest predictors of helping, right? So Yeah. With with this, though, she also wants to focus. um, I think you said something in the book about people often frame the request in terms of themselves, like, oh, you'll be helpful to me, which, you know, much as I might love all of you is is sort of less motivational than what I might get out of it. Yeah. Um, So you also have to frame the request in terms of more that person's identity, being part of the group and, and what they might get from it. And the, and, and, and the get from it part, you know, it, it's important to, to understand that, the, that, that what they want to get from it is not necessarily a reward, is not necessarily, in fact, actually, there's research that suggests that when you make it in exchange, it, especially with someone you already have a relationship with, it can actually kind of it, take it down a peg. Like, so you don't, you don't actually want to say, oh, if you do this thing for me, then um, I'll buy you lunch. 
you know, that actually sort of makes it feels like this, like very like, oh, well, I've, originally I was going to do it because I was going to feel like a great person who was very supportive to my friend and colleague. But now I'm apparently doing it for lunch, which is, doesn't allow me to feel like a really good person in the mix. So so, you know, I think that what we people do want, though, and I talk a lot about this in the book, is to be able to feel effective. And that's a, a thing that a lot of times we miss the mark on. So if you, if you, you know, an example that you use, like if you're going to switch, switch with me so that I can go to my child's event, I can see immediately how the impact, I understand immediately the impact of my helping will be on you. Like I can picture that and, and I can feel good about that. A lot of times people ask us for help and we, we're not really quite sure what the impact of our help would be. And people are demotivated in those cases. They, they really want to, and, and, you know, and, and whenever possible, we should actually kind of circle back and let them know what the impact was, because that is, that's the moment where you feel good. So I was a university professor for years and every, every fall students come to you and they ask for letters of recommendation for grad school, medical school jobs, and so on. And it's amazing what small fraction of them actually ever think to kind of contact you later and let you know how it all turned out. Mm-hmm. And, like, I got and, the job, by the way. Right. <laughs> yes, and, you would like and, to hear that. Exactly. I'd like to know, like, what school did you get? And And that's the moment where the help is rewarding. It's the moment when you feel like you your help landed and you and you know how it landed because you're seeing the impact you know writing the letters of recommendation isn't that satisfying because you're not really sure what's going to happen but hearing about what happened is the moment that feels really good and there's a lot of research that shows this for example with people who do like charity work um there was one great study where uh people who were um, volunteer fundraisers for a scholarship at a university they had to you know it's 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 difficult work you're getting on the phone and cold calling people and asking them for money for the scholarship. And uh, what the researchers did was for, for half of those people, they introduced them to a scholarship recipient who had, you know, who had gotten that scholarship and who got a chance to talk to them about the impact it had had on their lives. And then they looked and after that happened, for the next month, they looked at, at, you know, sort of their effort and the money they raised. And the people who had met the scholarship recipient actually spent two to three times as much time on the phone in the subsequent month, and also raised more than twice as much money. And, and so there is something about sort of tangibly knowing how, how your, what effect your help is going to have. And I encourage people to actually put that in the request itself. You know, if, you know, you, if you help me in this way, it's going to have a huge impact on my ability to reach this goal. Or if you help this to me in this way, it's going to like give me the time to do this other thing that I really want to do. That's going to be really beneficial to me. The more vivid you can make that for people so they can really see like, oh, you know, cause everybody wants to be an effect helper. Nobody wants to like do something and it didn't help. Um, there's no joy in that. There's no personal well-being in that. Um, so, so to the extent that we can create that for people, it's incredibly motivating for them to understand the impact that they can have. So let's talk through a few scenarios of, of mm-hmm. how we might practically ask for help. So, I mean, let's say like Sarah's office. Okay. So she's really busy physician seeing all kinds of people. She's starting the new residency program. Let's, you know, also has a six month old baby. <laughs> okay, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a realistic example yes. with this. Let's say I'm on call and I get a request like to fit in an urgent appointment, but I'm about to finish my call week and I have no space in my schedule mm-hmm. the next week. So this is a realistic one where I might 
kind of make it a lot easier if I could kind of give it to the next person on call or give it to somebody else But I, because I have so much going on. But at the same time, I'd feel kind of guilty for asking because everyone has a lot going on. Okay. What would your advice to me I think be? I think that it's really um, – so so you, you want to ask. So, so first and foremost, we need to get over the guilt thing. Um, everybody needs help sometimes. And the world is a better place with more asking because more asking creates more opportunities to help. And it creates relationships where you can have that reciprocity so that someone later on who needs your help can ask for it when you are perhaps in a position to give it. Yes, it's true that other people are busy. And that's a reason to be reasonable about your requests and to be understanding when people can't help for whatever reason. Um, but it's not a reason to not ask. Uh, we, we, we should all be doing a lot more asking. So first and foremost, I think you want to ask. Secondly, you want to ask, you know, explicitly. In this case, it's a very explicit request that you would be making. One of the mistakes I see people make a lot is they make these vague requests for help. And, and people turn down vague requests for help all the time because, again, they're not sure what it is you're really asking. They're not sure if they can be effective. They're not sure it's something they'll want to do. I'll just give you a quick example that I promise happens to Laura. I know for a fact this must happen because it happens to me. You People read your books and things, and they they uh, are interested in them. That's great. It's amazing. That's what you want. You, you want people to get stimulated and excited. And they send you an email, and they say things like, I'd love to get together and I'd love to connect um, or I'd love to pick your brain or I'd love to chat. Like, can I get an appointment with you or a meeting with you or go to coffee and connect or chat or something like this? Now, here's the thing. They want something right now. They, 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 they don't want to just connect. That's not even a thing. They, they, there's something they want, right? They, either they want to ask you some questions that came up for them when they were reading your work, or they want some kind of information, or they want an introduction perhaps to someone that you know in common, or they want, you know, in my case, it's like maybe they want to learn more about the company that I work for, and maybe they want a job. And those are all fine things to want, but say it, like say that that's the thing that you want from me, because that way I have certainty about what this is about and whether or not I can provide you with the thing that you're asking and whether or not I want to provide you with the thing that you're asking. That actually really increases the chances that I'm going to help you. So specific requests, I mean, when I get those requests to just connect, I mean, half the time I'm not proud of this, but the truth is I ignore them and and a lot of the time and and I ignore them and I feel bad about it. But what feels worse is like awkward conversations with strangers. That actually feels even worse to me. So like, I don't, I don't like to put myself in that position. So I think, you know, in your case, you're talking about, you're making a really explicit request, which is great. Um, people know exactly what it is you're asking them for. And then, you know, and, and again, I would, I would explain why, you know, you never want to make a request that's just, can you take this shift from me? Or can you take this thing off my plate without explaining what the reason is? Because people do have a bad reaction to feeling like that the, like it's possible that you just are pushing something onto them that you don't want to do. Um, and I, again, see that as a very common mistake that I see that people will say, hey, would you mind taking this uh, call for me with a client where, you know, in my organization, they'll say, can you make taking this call for me for the client? Why? Is it because this client is a real pain? Like, is that the reason that I'm not saying, or, you know, are you just, you don't feel like it? I mean, you know, what's the reason? If you say, you know, it's because I'm really slammed or 
you know, that you want to, you want to explain to people either I'm really, really slammed or I'm exhausted because I've been slammed for so long, or I have this other thing that's really important that I need to do. Or I ran into this, I tried doing this on my own, but I ran into an obstacle. I just can't seem to get past. Do you think that you would be able to help me get past this obstacle? You know, you want to give them the why, um, because that again is going to create empathy for you. It's going to create understanding. It's going to make them feel like your request is legitimate. It's valid. It's appropriate for you to be asking. So, so I think those are some simple things that we can do. Again, a lot of time that stuff is in our heads, but we don't say it. And other people need that context in order to feel really good about helping you and not feel like they're really being taken advantage of or manipulated in some way. Now, how about kids? Like, can we talk about kids? Oh, sure. sure. Oh, and I will add to that intergenerational differences because, you know, as we work with more and more younger uh, millennials or even Generation Z starting to come up in there, yeah. Do you feel like this differs? Are kids more willing to ask for help? I feel like millennials are. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That would be my experience, Um, certainly. And again, I think some of that is born, some of that is very healthy and some of it is not. And, and, and it's not that the asking for help is the problem. Again, so c- coming to this is through the lens of I was a university professor for a long time. I have uh, had a lot of undergraduates in my office. And, and there's, there's, again, these sort of two different situations you run into. One is where you've got the undergraduate who comes into your office. They have done everything they possibly could do. They tried to find the information. They tried to solve the problem themselves. Um, They worked hard, you know, whether it's uh, they have questions about a test or whether it's they have questions about their major um, and what classes they should be taking. And you can see that there's there's the kids that that gave it like they're all and they're stuck for some reason. And they come to you. And that's an incredibly rewarding uh, thing for me. And for just about anybody to get to help under those circumstances, right? It's like, here's this person who's like, you know, really deserving of help. And I get to feel really good that I help them get past whatever that obstacle was. And that's incredibly rewarding. Then there's the other ones who come into your office and they like just didn't bother, you know, like they didn't bother to like open a book or like look online. You know, there's my professors tend to like pass things around to each other when we're kind of like all exacerbated, like exasperated about something. And one of my favorite ones that came from a colleague of mine was a student who had asked her what time the exam was in, in, in response to an email the professor had sent where the subject line said what time the exam was. And it's like that, you know, it's just one of like these things where you go like, wow, you could not even be bothered to read this at all before you just sort of repeat reply and said, what time's the exam? And and so there's there's those are the moments where I do think that, um, you know, there's there's generations where definitely if you look at older generations, there were definitely, I think, too much concern with asking for help as a sign of weakness or, you know, that we should all be these like incredibly independent creatures, especially in the U.S. You do see cross-cultural differences in this as well. So like in very independent cultures uh, where people are kind of uh, believe that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you go it alone. And the U.S. is sort of like this. A lot of Western cultures are like this. Then then you do see generationally older, older people being uh, seeming to be a bit more proud, so to speak, uh, thinking that asking for help is a sign of weakness. I think it's a really positive thing that younger people today don't seem to have as much of that, that they 
feel more perhaps interconnected. They feel like it's more socially acceptable to ask for help. But you do see that sort of like the pendulum perhaps swinging a little too far in that, you know, and perhaps it's because of parenting styles having shifted that people just getting a lot of help. I I see a lot of kids, I see this with my own children, um, a lot of parents over helping overprotecting the helicopter parenting, um, that, that the doing everything for your kid, you know, the, the kids who come into class and they clearly have the project that was sent home with them was clearly done by their parents. And, and that can set up kids for asking, um, for help at times where it's really not appropriate. You really should have tried, <laughs> you know, you really should have done it yourself and you're, you're robbing your, you know, what, why it really matters apart from the fact that that's annoying is that it, you know, it's actually doing them harm because one of the most salient and important sources of confidence and and self-efficacy and self-esteem that a human being has is being able to look back. And this is a research-based statement, not just me, my personal opinion. One of the the strongest source of confidence and self-efficacy is being able to look back on the challenges that you have overcome and knowing that you have overcome them gives you confidence moving forward, that you can handle the new obstacles that hit you. And so when people get too go, go too far in the asking for help all the time, because I kind of just don't feel like doing this myself, you're actually getting robbed of experiences that would have built confidence and self-efficacy for you going forward. So I, I, I do think that it is um, something where we don't want the pendulum, you know, a request for help need to be valid and legitimate and not the, con- not the consequence of just, I don't feel like doing it. And that's important. So Heidi, but what if I just want my kid to like empty the dishwasher more frequently? Like, is there uh, a good way to, to phrase that? I, if I had the answer to, if I had a really like, <laughs> if I had like a silver bullet for that one, I think I would, that would just be like the one book I wrote and be like, how to get your kid to do what you tell them to do. I mean, I do, I do think that there is something to some of these same techniques, right? So a lot of times um, parents don't communicate why the child doing these things is so important, right? So it is actually important to actually articulate, you know, when you do not these just because that I, I said so. Yeah, I'm, not just because I said so, because it's a drag or, you know, trying to create guilt trips, but actually saying, you know, when, when you do this, here's what it, here's the impact that it has on me. Here's the impact that it has on all of us. You know, here's, here's why it's so important to contribute to, you know, you're, you're a member of this team and we're all in it together. And when you do that, it's, it is so great for me you know, and and I see, you know, it, you as I see you developing, you know, you're you're being becoming older and more responsible, and that's something I really, you know, respect, um, and that other people will respect. So you want that like positive identity that you want them to feel like they're a good person, and they're a, there's and they're and it's a reflection of their good qualities that they would do this thing, and they're a good team player as a as well, a, a helper, right? You yeah, want exactly. To you're a helper. Talk- they're a helper versus just yeah. helping. like the statement of identity is more important. The, the identity stuff is really, it is an opportunity to create positive identity for them. And we just need to, to take it. And it's all in the sort of that language you use. And I talk to my daughter when she's helpful about, again, I, you know, what a helpful person she is, how I see her growing into such a responsible young woman, you know, and really maturing and, and, and it's all true. I mean, I'm not just saying those things. I think that as she contributes more and more to the house, as she helps me more, 
more and takes responsibility for things more. That is all true. That's all a part of her development. And, and when you acknowledge that, it's really motivating for them. It's not just a have to. It's not just a let me get mom off my back. But it's like, wow, mom really admires me for for making these contributions. You know, they are something I should do, but it's also something that is admirable. And and I think when we can frame things that way, we're, again, we're, we're 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 playing off of that natural desire that teenagers absolutely have, kids absolutely have, you know, to be seen positively in the eyes of others. They they want that just like we do. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe that'll be your next book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there we go. Let How to get your kids to wash the dishes? <laughs> it'll just be an addendum to that. It'll be like in the next edition. I'll put like a, that up as another chapter. By the way, exactly. use this on your children. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a great interview with Heidi Grant. Her new book is Reinforcements um, about how to. So, Heidi, the exact subtitle, sorry. So it's, oh, it's Reinforcements How to Get People to Help You. Exactly. And we all know that one of the ways of having the best of both worlds is not doing everything ourselves um, and asking for help. So, we've had a lot of great advice there from Heidi on doing so effectively. So, Heidi, thanks so much for being on. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you, Heidi. Thank you both so much. This was a lot of fun. Well, that was a great interview. And now we segue into our Q&A. So this week, we're going to do a Q&A from me. Um, my question, which is a situation where I sort of thought I had asked for help, but maybe I did not do so effectively. So, you know, people who've been um, listening to this podcast or reading my blog sort of know general outlines of, of my family situation. So my husband and I both travel for work, you know, both have reasonably demanding jobs. He, he definitely um, travels more for work than I do. We've, we've had some tension in the past over times that uh, are very busy for me, uh, namely around book launches. And I have this perception, like I feel he's not giving the same level of home and kids support during my busy times that I feel he's given me during his busy times. Now, obviously, recognize certain things like he works for a company, right? Like I do not. I work for myself. Um, and so there's slightly less control of the time. Although, on the other hand, he's worked for the same company for 25 years. And the honest truth is he has 100% control over his time. All right. That's just my editorial comment. I wrote out a nice, calm question. And now here I am like already editorializing about it. <laughs> the problem of doing your own question. Anyway, so in the past, like we've missed various things with book launches. It's always been a thing like, oh, I didn't know it was coming up. Yes, you did. Come on. It's been my email signature for six months or, um, <laughs> you know, uh, like it was just a really busy time for me. But anyway, so I told him the book launch date for off the clock like 10 months ago and asked that he please scale down his travel around it so he could handle the kids stuff that we I normally do. And, you know, we have a full-time nanny, but with four kids, there's always parental stuff too. And and even if like you outsource that too, it's like arranging for a second driver, like taking on the logistics of that or whatever, you know, kid appointments had to be made and all that. So I asked if he could do that or figure out someone else to do it, but get the mental load off me for a few weeks, a big chunk of which would be to not travel as much. And then he could also handle things like the three-time bed three-year-old bedtime battles so I could work. Anyway, let's just say, long story short, this did not happen really at all. <laughs> so my question is, Sarah, like, how should I deal with this? Uh, how do I talk myself down from the ledge? Or how do I ask to be more effective on, on my next book launch? Oh, man. Okay. So yes, I think there are that, that the two pronged uh, question at the end that you just said is key. So there's two parts. Number one, like, 
Let's get down from the ledge because your husband is a really nice guy. I've met him and I have a feeling that maybe he wasn't, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here, that maybe he wasn't hearing exactly what you needed. So we'll get there in a second. Um, And the second part is how could we potentially have a better experience next time? Because there certainly will be a next time because I'm sure there, well, we know there's at least one more book in the pipeline and there's going to be more after that. So I guess my first thought is, you know, in my experience, sometimes I feel like when I flip out about my husband, not something to come that's coming up, sometimes he has a little bit too big of a grain of salt, um, at least in my opinion, like, you know what, Sarah's freaking out, but really it's probably going to work out okay. And I'm not going to take it that seriously. And then a lot of times he's proven right. So then that kind of perpetuates the behavior. <laughs> because so I guess, Earth didn't stop spinning <laughs> on its axis. <laughs> yeah. Like I would like, maybe, maybe you asked him, you know, oh, I need like, you know, cone of silence for a month. And maybe in his mind, he's like, eh, she doesn't really need that. So maybe part of what would help would be being really, really specific about what you need and like literally giving him dates. Like, I need you to not travel between this date and this date. Perhaps even saying, is there someone at work? So I've done this and maybe like this is overstepping, but I've even like emailed his scheduler politely like, oh, could I please see the July call schedule? Because I'd like to know. So can you go, you know, beyond him and say, oh, would you like me to like let your secretary or scheduler know that like you need to be home between X date and X date. So being really, really specific. And I also think that saying like, I don't want to deal with the mental load, like to many, at least male partners, like they may not know what that load that you're talking about is necessarily. So it's harder for them to know what you mean. So you could literally make a specific list in an email, be like, I need you to handle all doctor's appointments, all drop-offs, all X, Y, Z during this date to this date. And um, also invite him to let you know, does that work for you? Because if not, maybe, maybe you actually, maybe he can't, you know, maybe he's like, actually, you know, what? I don't think I can step up for that. I can do this part of it, but you actually probably just need to have two caregivers, which I guess, you know, that's not the choice I would want my husband to make. But if, if that's, if that's it, then better that than it all landing on you at the last minute when you're really not able to deal with it. So yeah, I, I would say, asking for really specifically what you need also making sure that you're you're not over reacting because I do, like at least I'm, I'm speaking of myself like I'll be like we have to get to the airport nine hours before the flight like sometimes I do go like a step be- I get stressed about something so I go a step beyond and that allows my husband to sort of blow off all of it because I've gone extra do you know what I mean so making sure you're asking truly for what you do need and being very specific about what it is yeah I think that would be that would be maybe an improvement for next time, but you'll have to, you'll have to let us know. And I also think this is one that our readers and listeners, we welcome your thoughts as well. Yeah. Just now, how you, how you ask for your busy times, especially if you are, you know, often the one who's doing maybe more of that um, kid and home stuff. Um, and you'd like to specifically not do it for a short period of time when you're feeling rather stressed about things, as the case may be. All right. So we welcome your feedback on that. And uh, are we doing our love of the week afterwards? Or we did it? <laughs> oh, I think, I think, sure. Let's do our love of the week after. Let's close with the love of the All week. Right, we can always it. ask our guests yes. for the love of the week as well. But um, just in case that I am not there during the recording segment, um, 
I would say my love of the week this week is my Gap Pure Body Leggings because I was looking for some really good – so you know how like a lot of the leggings these days, they do a really good job like sucking you in and like being really high rise and stuff and they look kind of nice when you're working out and you feel – well, that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the leggings that you want to put on that are like so soft and comfortable and like completely non-constricting because um, I, I think I mentioned previously that I was on a quest to find some better loungewear. Well, the Gap Pure Body Leggings are about 20 bucks and are perfect for this. And I'm about to order like two more pairs because I want to have a little stockpile. They do seem to wash pretty well. They're made of modal, which is like, I guess, bamboo generated um, with some spandex in them. And they're just, oh, they're so light and dreamy. I love them. Oh, that's cool. I've been um one of the things I've been I've been loving is I don't know if I I mean I only have one little girl um <laughs> so uh my my knowledge of like little girl clothing has has only sort of recently developed in the sense of I'm not you know the fashionista far but I've been happy to see how much little girl clothing is like structured for playing now um that you know my my daughter loves these skirts and all that but so many of them either come with little shorts inside or it's just very easy to like buy little bike shorts that go you know under the short under the dresses and I don't recall that being something I ever like experienced growing up like that wasn't you know something we had a lot of uh and and so it's good that you can both be this like flouncy little girl in the skirts and you know still be on the monkey bars uh without showing everyone your underwear um so <laughs> it's a uh, agree skirts are skirts awesome, are awesome. Like, yeah. yeah no good so that's that's my love of the week all right well this has been best of both worlds fascinatingly mixed episode all kinds of stuff going on in this one uh but we'll be back next week with more on making work and life fit together Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.